Middle East on the brink, North Korea on the brink, Iran increasing its aggression, elections in Taiwan. Look, there's a lot of global instability as we ourselves plunge into primary season. How have you sheltered your savings and investments from potential major setbacks to the economy? You think it can happen here? It can happen here, but it's not too late to diversify an old IRA or 401k into gold. And Birch Gold Group can help you with that. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. As opposed to many other investments, Gold thrives in times of uncertainty. It is an important part of diversifying your savings. Now listen, here's how Birch Gold can help make it a part of yours. Birch Gold will help you convert an existing IRA or 401k into a tax-sheltered IRA in gold. And it doesn't cost you a penny out of pocket. You want to learn more? Just text SAVAGE to 989898 for a free info kit. S-A-V-A-G-E, text it to 989898 and you get a free info kit. It costs you nothing. Just text SAVAGE to 989898. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, countless five-star reviews, and thousands of happy customers, I encourage you to arm yourself with the knowledge of diversification through precious metals. Protect yourself. Text SAVAGE to 989898 and claim your free info kit. Protect your savings with gold. Do it now. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Thank you very much. Birch Gold is the only gold company I trust. Text SAVAGE to 989-898. Warning, the Savage Nation contains adult language, adult content, psychological nudity. Listener discretion is advised. And now, the world's most exciting podcast, The Savage Nation, home of borders, language, culture, and here he is, New York Times best-selling author and National Radio Hall of Fame inductee, Michael Savage. Welcome to the free version of the Michael Savage podcast, and I'm going to keep it free for all of you. But there are many of you who would love to be able to listen to my show without any ads. I love ads, but many of you want to listen to the podcast free of ads. So we created something for you, a solution. We call it the Savage Premium. For less than the price of one flat, tasteless beer at your local bar, you can receive access to all of my podcasts going back years ad-free for just $3.99. That's at $3.99 a month. You'll get not only my ad-free podcast, but you will also occasionally receive access to material that is exclusive for members only, and I'm going to give you the list in a minute of what you've, what you've missed. You're going to get an occasional monologue from me, maybe a reading from one of my novels, sneak peeks of interviews before anyone else hears them, archive pieces dating back to 1994. Many things that come up, you're going to get exclusive access to Michael Savage material. Details can be seen on my website, michaelsavage.com, and if you want to join... All you got to do is go to glow.fm and search Savage Premium. That's glow.fm and search Savage Premium. Now, you will always have access to my free weekly podcast. I want to be clear about that. That's my promise to you. But if you want less ads and more Savage, join the Savage Premium Club today and never miss a spoken word of mine. It's glow.fm slash Savage Premium. You can find it on michaelsavage.com. And here's some of the stuff that you have missed so far. Michael Savage reading from his best-selling novel, Countdown to Mecca. My words, my voice. Savage reads from one of his lost journals, Fiji, 1968. Savage's first drive-time show, Hour One. My interview with the Jewish gangster, very popular. I uh, read from my first written, published article, Who Was at the Helm? From 1965, it's heard nowhere but on my premium site. I read passages from my novel, Abuse of Power. Uh, we replayed Fat Al's Tuna. My Savage show from 324.94, the earliest show in the archive, 324.94. My interview with Donald Trump from 110.2011. 110.2011, while Mark Levin was mocking him and Sean Hannity was mocking him uh, and the others were mocking him, I was interviewing Trump much more and remember subscribers also get ad-free podcasts every week the cost is less than a beer at a bar and you get a better buzz with, <laughs> with the savage premium so go to go to glow.fm slash savage premium for full access to ad-free podcasts and exclusive sound you'll not hear anywhere else thank you very much welcome to the savage nation podcast 
Well, it's Thanksgiving weekend, and people are shopping, doing other things, and I didn't think you want too much to do with politics today. So I've dipped into my archives, and I went back to all of my Savage Radio stories in my first book in the subject called Psychological Nudity. That was followed up by the next book called Train Tracks, Family Stories for the Holidays. And then the third in the sequence, some of the stories overlapped, were found in A Savage Life by Michael Savage. And uh, of course, not all the stories will be heard today, but we found a few of them for you that are safe for the whole family. And the lead title is Dead Man's Pants because unfortunately I actually was poor enough that I did wear the pants of dead men. Then there's a story about one-armed Frank, Louie and the Monkey. Everyone wants to hear Fat Al's tuna again. Uh, the yawn man gets cancer, fly in the tuna, Teddy and the blanket, my two-fingered IRA teacher, my Irish math teacher with two fingers, the other fingers were blown off (laughs) probably from a bomb in Ireland. They're all in here, fly in the tuna, uh, woodchuck bill, Louie and the monkey. I hope you enjoy them. You've got one solid hour of pleasure. Please share it with your whole family, and if you enjoy them, Share it with others so we have a bigger audience. You could probably still find copies of A Savage Life, Train Tracks, or even Psychological Nudity somewhere online. Unfortunately, I do not sell books. Perhaps I will in the future. God knows. But it's free, so enjoy and listen to them. Dead Man's Pants and Other Stories for the Holidays right now on the Michael Savage Podcast. Of all the people I run into once in a while, they say, you know, I loved your childhood stories and the most interesting one to me was dead man's pants so now ladies and gentlemen without further ado dead man's pants growing up in the bronx as i did the man child in the promised land i didn't have many of the luxuries most kids with their hats on back would take for granted today my father was an immigrant he worked his fingers to the bone we simply didn't have the money to afford more than the basics so as you might expect i cherished and took care of the things i had as a kid i'd line up my shoes under my bed at night neat like in the military I made sure they were polished, too. I'm sure some shrink today would say I suffered from ADD or other compulsive behavior disorders and should have been put on a regimen of drugs. I wonder what they'd say about the fact that through most of my youth, I wore secondhand pants from dead men. Many of the pants I wore as a preteen came off of stiffs cut down to fit me. Now, don't get me wrong. My father was a good man. He ran a small antique store with mostly 19th century stuff. On the side, at least in the beginning, he sold used goods as well. A man's got to do what a man's got to do to make ends meet, right? Occasionally, he would go to an auction after a man died and buy the entire estate. The clocks, the dishes, the mirrors, whatever the man had. The pants, the shirts, the whole deal. You get the picture? Back at the store as he sorted the stuff for resale, he'd take a closer look at the suit. Once he got a hot shafter and mark suit from a dead man. Now, what's he going to do? Toss it in the garbage like they do today? In those days, it wasn't in him to throw out a good worsted fabric. Instead, he brought home the pants to me. I remember my father called me to the bedroom and showed them to me like the head tailor at Nordstrom's department store. He'd say, now, Michael, get a good look at the fabric. I wanted to vomit. I got a migraine because I knew what was coming. Take a look at the quality of this fabric. He's working me like a salesman. He's unrolling the pants on the bed. I can see it to this day. He unrolls it like he's selling me a bolt of handwoven cloth. He would say, you can't get fabric like this anywhere. I wanted to say, of course not, Dad. They only sell stuff like that for men who died. You know, it was like special clothing for the undertaker. Even if I had said something, that wouldn't have changed one thing. He'd go downtown and the pants would come back fit for me. You know, shortened without the legs taken in properly. (laughs) I'm sorry. They ended up baggy like an Abbott and Costello pair of (laughs) pants. I'm sorry. They ended up baggy like an Abbott and Costello pair of pants. Even if they had fit me properly, there was something repugnant about the whole idea. Like I said, I knew how to make do with whatever was at hand. There's an old saying, the man with no shoes complains until he meets the man with no feet. The fact that I didn't have much more than a place to sleep in my first little apartment after college was okay with me. At least I wasn't wearing dead man's pants. Little did I know that one day those awful pants would serve as a metaphor for the shift in my political orientation. You might find it interesting that I wasn't always an independent conservative. I was raised a Democrat, blue-collar home. My dad was a Democrat. My mom was a Democrat. Most of my relatives still vote Democrat. To an immigrant family whose parents came of age during the Great Depression, 
President Franklin Delano Roosevelt was the great white savior. Aside from being the only U.S. president re-elected to office three times, he gained lasting political mileage with the relief that his New Deal offered. As you might expect, then, my father used to tell me, Michael, all I know is the Democrats are for the little guy and the Republicans are for big business. In a way, his attempt to sell me on the political leanings of the Democrat Party was no different than his sales job with the dead man's pants. He was selling me a failed ideology that should have been buried long ago. So as a young man, not seeing things as clearly as I do now, I voted as my dad did, since I didn't understand politics. But as I grew older, that view would change completely. The turning point in my thinking can be traced back to my first job out of college as a social worker in the Upper West Side of New York. All of my so-called clients were minorities. Now, I was a good liberal at the time, having had my brain washed at one of the city universities in New York by a whole slew of European immigrants who, instead of kissing the ground when they got here, urinated on the sacred soil and the flag and immediately sought to instill communist philosophy in the minds of the young, myself included. I didn't know that at the time. I was just a wide-eyed liberal kid with an eye on changing the world. There I was, fresh out of Queens College. Having minored in sociology, I figured I'd take a job as a social worker to save the, quote, oppressed minority. I was always an idealist. I still am, as a matter of fact. But the abuses of the welfare system that I saw back then nauseated me and started me on my slow road to recovery. Day after day, I found person after person who was working who had a job but who claimed they didn't so they could get their government handout. Worse, they knew they were ripping off the welfare system and didn't bat an eye. How could I be so sure these hucksters weren't swindling Uncle Sam? I mean, you could argue that they were oppressed and didn't know the rules. Not me. At a young age, I learned a valuable lesson on how to spot people who smiled to your face while robbing you blind the second your back was turned. I got to tell you the story about the ripped pants. I told you, I was the kind of kid because I didn't have a lot of money. Nothing. I'm not boasting about it, but... So if I had a pair of shoes, I'd line them up under my bed at night. I was that kind of kid. I, maybe today it's ADD or, you know, comp, auto, compulsive behavior, they would call it. But any shoes I had, I'd put them under my bed, like neat, before going to sleep, like in a military camp. And I made sure they were shine. All my shoes were lined up under my bed. It's very unusual for a kid, I guess. There's something there. Should I add it to those of you who think you're smarter than me and you're, you're really uh, onto me? I'm allergic to roses and I'm allergic to cats. And I lined my shoes up as a child. So go go write your theses at uh, the Kennedy School of Government. See if I care. So I lined my shoes up. And, uh, okay, now I speed the clock forward. I'm in junior high school. I get these pants. My mother, God bless her. I have to have some modern pants. After all, through most of my youth, I was wearing secondhand pants from dead men. I mean, I don't want to tell you that story. But a lot of the pants I wore came off stiffs. And they were cut down. That's a very funny story. But it's absolutely true. My fa- I swear to you, this is a hell of a story, but it's unfortunately, as macabre and black as it is, it's true. Uh, Now, the family will deny it. They deny all these stories, but you see, I have a very good memory. My father was a good guy. Okay, so he ran a small antique store, but it wasn't antiques like antiquities. 19th century stuff, God bless him. But on the side, he's in the beginning, he sold used things as well. He had had to make a living. So when the bronzes didn't sell, maybe he would, uh, you know, sell some other things, God bless him. And he would go to auctions where a man had died, and he'd buy the entire, you know, proceeds. The clocks and whatever, the man, the the pants, the whole deal, right? So let's say he could sell the clocks, God bless him. But now he sees it, he sees a suit, a hot shaft remark suit from the dead man. And he would look at it, and he'd see good material, good fabric. Now what's he going to do, throw it in the garbage? In those days, it wasn't in him to throw out a good worsted fabric. So he would bring the pants home, and he'd show them to me. Now look at the fabric. Now, I want to vomit. I get a migraine because I know what's coming. Take a look at this fabric. He's like a salesman. He's unrolling the pants. I can see it to this day. He unrolls it like he's selling me a bolt of cloth in the Middle East. Look at fabric like this, he would say. You can't get fabric like this. And I wanted to say, of course not, Dad. They only sell it for men who died. You know I mean? It's like special clothing for the, un- for the undertaker. And I knew it was coming. He'd go downtown, mm, and the pants would come back fit for me. You know, with, without the legs taken in properly, it was like an Abbott and Costello pair of pants. So now by the seventh grade, my mother felt bad for me. So she finally spent some money and she buys the peg pants. I never forget how beautiful they were. It was an Elvis Presley time, you know what I'm saying? With the stat- saddle stitch to this big punk. I'm in the seventh grade. I'm around 12. He is about 17 left back, as I said. And he don't like my pants because he had a pair like that. And he smacked me around a little, knocked me down, and I got up, but I scuffed the pant on the knee and ripped them. Now my heart's broken. Now my heart's pounding all through the class, geometry, whatever. 
social. I didn't know what they would talk. The teacher was like talking. I didn't know what she was saying. All I'm saying is, oh, my God, oh, my God, oh, my God, my mother's going to kill me. I ripped these pants. I ripped these pants. I ripped these pants. So I ripped the pants. The guy, the, I know who he is, by the way, he did it. I can't name him because he'd sue me. I found out he became a big record producer years later. Yes, that's right. At age 17, his uncle was in the record business, went and became rich at 21. I can't mention any more than that. He was a mean SOB, man. Oh, I don't know how he still walks. But anyway, so the pants are ripped, and I'm can't, I, can't, I can't focus on algebra. I can't focus on world history. Heart is beating. I don't know how I'm going to tell mother. Walk home in the ice cold, and all I see, you know, like a kid sees things blown up. All I see is the rip in the pants, the shred. Now, my mother was very nice. She takes it to a tailor. And the word comes back two days later that he can weave the pants. I felt like a life sentence had been lifted from my heart. That I somehow didn't ruin this great present given to me. I swear to God. I asked what does weave the pants mean? It was a huge family discussion. Of course, not in front of the fathers. The women, it was like a conspiracy. They sat with the bread knives over the linoleum thing on the table. And they moved the bread around. I love those. They, they moved the crumbs around. And they talked. By the time the crumbs were sifted... The pants were more or less consigned to where they belonged to begin with. My heart was healed, and we all went on with our lives. Those were the good old days, ladies and gentlemen. Michael Savage, a host like no other. Did I ever tell you about one arm Frank? You haven't heard the one arm Frank story. Do I have a moment? My father, I told you, was an antique dealer. May he rest in peace. So we would come home from... Why? Well, he had a guy who come, came in with one arm. I don't know how the guy became one arm. But he, you know, you didn't know a lot of people with one arms in those days. Even today, they have a... I guess you don't know one arm people today. They have a fake arm. But he had the arm sewed up, you know, in a suit. So, all right, so you accept him. His name, though, was one arm Frank. Because nobody hid reality in those days. Today, it's like, oh, yeah, he's normal. He's just like a... In those days, it was one-armed Frank. Today, it's like, oh, he's better than normal, man. He's special. Like, if you have one arm, you're better than a guy with two arms today. You know what I mean? If you have no arms and no legs, you're Superman in the politically correct world of today. But in those days, if you were missing an arm, that's what you would name, one-armed Frank. Whatever your anomaly was, that, that was your name. It made it easier for the average person to remember everybody. So one-armed Frank was a very sweet guy, but a breath on him. Now, I want to tell you, there are bad breaths, then there are very bad breaths, then there are medicinal problems. This had to be solved with, with a, a medicine that hasn't ex been invented yet. It was winter time, and once in a while, my old man would drive one-armed Frank home, and I'd get stuck in the back, and one-armed Frank would get shotgun. Now, I want to tell you something. It could be minus four degrees in New York. You had to ride with all the windows open. Did you ever have a person like this, Greg? I'm serious, where it's medicinally like a medical problem, where he says anything and the car fills with a, no <laughs> a noxious fume where you're, you don't know what to do. You know, are we going past the Trons Meat Factory? No, we're not in Williamsburg. Did we run over a small furry creature that got caught in the muffler and shot up through the floorboard? Did I step on something on the way? No, it's Frank talking. Monkeys rampage in Indian capital. Just after the Indian, weeks after the Indian's capital's deputy mayor toppled to his death fighting off a pack of monkeys, the animals are back on the attack, sparking fresh concerns about the simian menace. One woman was seriously hurt and two dozen other people were given first aid after monkeys rampaged through a neighborhood in East Delhi over the weekend. So the monkeys are out of control. Uh, rogue monkeys running into residences. Uh, I guess if I go on with the story, I'll be accused of simiophobia. And I'm liable to face a boycott from uh, some monkeys around the globe. And I, I can't afford that because if the monkeys were to boycott my products, there'd be no conservatives left to buy them, I suppose. <laughs> that reminds me of the monkeys going crazy. You know, many people, oh, they, they, everything they turn into cute. Everything's cute. A bear is cute. A monkey's cute. You know, this is such liberal stupidity. Monkeys are dangerous with big teeth. So it reminds me of Louis the monkey, Louis and the monkey story, which I told once at most in my in my tenure on radio. We go back now, ladies and gentlemen, put on your resting cap. We're going to go back in time. We're going back to the Lower East Side of New York. Dad owns a small antiques mart. Little old Michael's cleaning bronzes in the back, and there's Louis the Bum from the Bowery, who in those days, he was a drunk. He wasn't a bum. He worked. Dad would have him in on the weekends, and he'd clean the bronzes and whatever he did down there. I loved Louis. Louis was a great guy. But now you got to understand, this guy was a stoned alcoholic of the old school. 
skinny like a rail, white guy, skinny like a rail, smoked like unfiltered cigarettes. But one of the nicest guys on earth, he wears the rubber apron, he's cleaning downstairs, does the um, the bronzes. Then, of course, I took over because dad wanted cheap child labor and where else are you going to get it from his son, you know. So I'm doing the things. So I got to know Louis over the years and he taught me various things like once, once we had Louis over to the house. I never forget it. I was so proud that my father took this guy who I liked all the way out to Queens and invited him to dinner. I don't know what came over. Maybe it was Thanksgiving or whatever. And Louis had dinner with us at the table and the guy was surprisingly erudite and he knew things. And like after dinner, we did games and Louis the drunk showed me how to bend nails. He showed me mind over matter. He took a nail and he showed me that if you put your fingers, blah, 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 and put your mind on it and keep up the pressure, the nail would bend. I was shocked because I was a skinny kid with little hands and I bent the nail and he taught me mind over matter, but it was all molecular because you put the heat and the pressure, blah, blah, blah. Eventually that nail is going to bend. But I learned in life, it's the same thing. It's all willpower. Okay. Now there's another element to the story. So Louis is this kind of guy, interesting, but an alcoholic and this and that years go by. He takes, he lives alone in Williamsburg. In those days, Williamsburg was like a slum, zero, you know, oil cloth city, leftover uh, apartments from the last century. No one wanted to be there but the poor. So he lives there alone. He's very lonely. He gets a monkey. He wants a monkey. Now, out of the world, nobody in those days had a monkey. Dogs, yes. Cats, yes. No. Who had a monkey in those days? Louis gets a monkey. But Louis don't just get a spider monkey, one of the skinny little monkeys. Louis gets a woolly monkey. Now, woolly monkeys are already strong. They got a chest on them. They got strong hands. And Louis in love with this monkey. For a couple of months, they're inseparable. Wherever he goes, there's the monkey. And the monkey's on his shoulder and where he's cleaning and he's happy. Now, Louis was the kind of guy that if he went to a bar on the Lower East Side, I remember the name to this day, named Hamelin Corn. Whatever money he made for my father, he'd take two minutes later, he'd be in the bar. And he'd throw money in a jukebox and he would whistle and sing and he'd buy everyone drinks till he was broke. He'd stumble out in the street. He would get hit by a car, sleep on a bar. He didn't care. He lived for the booze and that was it. But he had a heart of gold. So Louis gets the monkey, finally has someone to fill his empty nights. And as I say, they were inseparable. Well, as time went on, we get a call. Louis in the hospital. He's dying. What? The monkey went crazy in his apartment, attacked him and almost ripped him to pieces. And he suffered for three, six months in the hospital. I don't know which hospital, probably Bellevue, because that's where they all wound up. And the monkey went at him. And left, you don't know what a monkey's like when it goes crazy. You try to stop an enraged monkey without a weapon. He ripped his neck. He ripped his face. He ripped his arms. He ripped his leg. He ripped his crotch. He ripped his behind. Louis was ripped up pretty bad. And eventually, he, he took the monkey. I think he grabbed it and threw it out of the window. Oh, it just shows you. If he hadn't have done it, he'd be dead today, okay? But a liberal today probably would have tried to talk to the monkey. Louis knew that the instincts had to kick in. It was him or the monkey, and he decided it was better him than the monkey. He didn't consult a liberal book on how to deal with a crazed monkey. He just fought with it and killed it. I think that's what the bottom line is here. But the point is, is that even a lonely drunk needs companionship at night. In his case, he found the monkey. It was probably the right thing for him to do. But it goes back to the story I opened with, which is that the monkeys are rampaging in India. And the rogue monkeys are breaking into houses, including the daughters of the ruling Congress party. They broke into the Indian parliament. Trouble boiled over in late October when the city's deputy mayor fell to his death driving away monkeys from his home. He was on his balcony reading a paper when four monkeys appear, his family says. He waves a stick to scare them away, tumbles over the edge, and boom, he drops dead, falls off the balcony and dies. So right now you could see that Louis was a uh, pioneer in a way, in a sense that he understood that monkeys were dangerous long before they did in India when they turned into a sacred animal. <laughs> and that's the Louis and the monkey story. And that's it. That's the story. The bottom line is don't get a monkey as a pet. They're wild animals. Now, Fat Al's tuna, that's a recipe. When I was a boy working as a uh, busboy in the Shanks Paramount Hotel, I saw how tuna was really made. Fat Al was a 350-pounder. Now, when he made tuna in a tureen, he didn't use a mix mask. They used his hairy forearm. 
He got a cigarette dangling from the right side of his mouth, and the kitchen was banging and bustling, and the people were out there eating a ninth meal of the afternoon. And he was mixing a tuna. He would throw the cans of tuna in. They'd throw in vats of mayonnaise. And the guy stirred it with his arm. He had a he rolled up his undershirt. You see, you got to vi- visualize this. Fat Al would lean over that tureen with the arm, the big, giant Italian arm, full of hair. And his arm was mayonnaise thick up to his armpit. And he's got the arm moving around. And he said, you see, kids, you keep moving it till you get a nice creamy consistency. Meanwhile, the ash is falling off his cigarette. I guess that helped the taste of the tuna because the people never complained. They loved it. Now, that's a tuna. There is a proper tuna with a little sweat and arm hair. Now, that is a good tuna fish recipe. Other than that, I don't want to talk about recipes. Shall I tell you about lessons from a tuna fish sandwich? Lessons from a tuna fish sandwich on the Savage Nation. Nah, I don't want to tell you about that. I'll, I'll, I'll make it the short version. I was nine years old. I went to work with my father, right? And then I wanted to eat. My father screamed down the stairs as I was cleaning bronze. He said, go buy some lunch. So while I was out of the basement, my heart started to race when it became clear that he wasn't going with me. I hated the thought of facing the mean streets of uh, Lower East Side alone, dodging the rats, the garbage, and the thugs hanging out in the street corners. I think my father saw my hesitation, but he insisted that I face those horrible streets alone. Sending me out into the byways of Manhattan was how he wanted to toughen me up. My father thought I might be too soft, you know, growing up in a safer neighborhood as we did. So off I go in search of lunch. Several blocks away was a restaurant that served no meat, just salads, tuna fish, and such. I ordered the tuna, paid the man behind the counter, and a few minutes later headed back to the store. When I gave my father the sandwich, he opened it up and saw a huge dead fly in it. I'll never forget his reaction. His face turned red. His eyes went wide as twin saucers, and the veins along both sides of his neck bulged. He looked as if he were ready to erupt like Mount St. Helens. Dad was infuriated that someone would take advantage of his kid like this. He assumed that they did it on purpose just to be spiteful. They probably did, but what did I know? Now, my father wasn't necessarily a violent man, but in that moment, he looked as if he could have strangled a bear with his bare hands. He was incensed by the sheer wrongness of what he had discovered. So, my dad grabbed me by the hand and dragged me up the street, back to that lousy luncheonette. He opens the door with a bang and looks around. The sleepy customers glance up from their menus with interest at this new development. Dad spots the owner coming out of the kitchen wearing a smirk and an apron as if nothing was wrong. My father unloaded with both barrels yelling, How dare you give my son a sandwich with a fly in it? The deli man said, Don't worry, I didn't charge you for it. I learned a valuable lesson that day. I learned that there are bad people in the world who will do bad things for whatever reason and that remaining silent when faced with wrongdoing isn't an option. It might be unpopular to take a stand. It might turn a few heads. But my father taught me to speak up in the face of adversity. Which brings us to Obama's socialist revolution, which is far worse than planting a fly in a tuna sandwich, (laughs) which is all the more reason you and I have an obligation to speak against the destruction he's planning of this once great country. So that's not bad. You see, lessons from a tuna fish sandwich. Who else could do that? The Savage Nation. It's savage on demand. When I was a kid, Every summer, I love the summer. What kid didn't? Because in those days, you didn't go to summer school. You didn't go to a, a camp to advance your mathematical knowledge, another to advance your sports knowledge, another to lose your, your tubby waist. You went and had fun for the whole summer. And we were kind of poor. So what we did was to get out of the hot inner city, the family rented a small cottage with all the other families from the neighborhood and relatives up in the uh, cool mountains called the Catskill Mountains, and they were known as bungalow colonies because you were got basically a one-room, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom, boom. And your whole family was in there, but they were like, all, the whole thing was filled with your friends and their parents, so it became like a little village. Naturally, it was paradise because every other parent was your parent, and you reverted back to like another time in history, so it was wonderful. We'd play Indians out in the woods, and we'd carve trees and make canoes. God knows what we did. So in one of these places, there was a guy who was a caretaker who lived in an old abandoned barn with his, with his wife, believe it or not. And he, he like, mow, you know, mowed the lawn. He had the hammer, fixed the hammer. His name was Woodchuck Bill. And us kids, it was like a Tom Sawyer thing. We loved Woodchuck Bill. Kids loved. Now, remember, he was not a bum. See, today they're bum. They're a homeless. He was what was known as a, uh, a hobo in those days. And there were people who were hobos. They were sort of respectable in their own way. That was his job category. He was like hobo. He would put it on the IRS. Like, what do you do? Job category, hobo. 
I don't know what he made next to nothing. But he lived up in this, as I say, ramshackle, barn-like structure with his. He had a wife, actually. And Woodchuck Bill would regale us kids with his stories. And he was a big guy with a big stomach on him. So the story begins with him saying, all right, kids, come over here. Today, he probably arrest him for molestation, just for even telling us a story. Some freak would arrest him. He says, all right, I want all of you to punch me in the stomach. Now, right away, that's rape today. It's a raping a child in some way. So we'd all go up with our skinny little arms. We were nine, eight, seven, and punch him in the stomach, and nothing would happen. So naturally, we thought he was Superman. He must have been pretty strong. I mean, if you think about it, because they're eight-year-old kids that can give you quite a belt even today. Anyway, so we all hit him, and we realized we were nothing compared to Woodchuck Bill. Then we'd sit at his feet, and he would tell us stories. He'd say, well, I've seen hurricanes, and I've seen tornadoes. Well, we sat spellbound, like really out of a, uh, a book from the 19th century. So what I liked most about Woodchuck Bill was that he lived in this barn with almost nothing. He had his few pots and pans, him and his wife, and they hung from, like, uh, hooks over the thing, and they actually cooked in there. But he said he used to eat woodchucks. He'd say, Bill, what do you eat? He said, we, ate, we eat woodchucks. Who knows if he's telling the truth? I don't know if you can eat a woodchuck. And that's the uh, Woodchuck Bill story. I mean, you wanted something more to it. There is nothing more. That's a jazz story. you got to understand jazz music to understand that story. It ends like boom, and the horn goes down. That's it. But unless you understand how jazz works, you're not going to be, like, satisfied because you want a beginning, a middle, and an end. And then Bill raped us, and he was taken away by Child Protective Services, and we lived miserably ever after. No, it didn't happen that way. Today, they'd arrest him for just being Woodchuck Bill. They'd give him treatment. they put him on a pill. And he'd probably go berserk and kill people in the, on the IRT, throw him on a third rail when the pill wore off. <laughs> Here was the diet of the young savage. Now, mind you, it was meant because the parents came from a relatively, you know, impoverished background. I am very proud of that because they rose up. So what do poor people do when they get a little money? They feed themselves and they feed themselves holiday foods three times a day. Everything that they would eat at a holiday when they were children, they gave their children for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So a typical breakfast would be ham and eggs, uh, maybe four eggs, maybe a, a brick of ham. I'm not talking a slice. I'm talking Canadian bacon size, the size of your, yeah, at least your pinky. Ham and eggs, dripping the eggs, a glass of milk, you had to have 12 ounces of milk, and then uh, a jelly donut to go to school with. Immediately, I had narcolepsy. The minute I hit the classroom, zzz. Michael, what is, uh, you know, two plus five? I had no idea. It was a drowsy. Thank God it snowed in my face. It woke me up just on the walk to school. But the minute I, I got there and took off the scarf, I, I was got so drowsy from the heaters in the school. I went right to sleep. The next thing I knew, someone shook me and it was lunchtime. Lunchtime, ring, ring, lunchtime, recess, meatloaf sandwich from the night before, some type of potato dish that was congealed. In order for travel, for eating in haste, some kind of type of congealed potato dish that was stuck together like with mortar, you know, beaten with a mortar and pestle with some kind of glue. It wasn't just a potato, you know, which is good for you with glued potatoes. Uh, that was it. That was dinner. Five o'clock, the early show. And there I was in front of the TV with a tray and steak, French fries, ice cream. And poor dad would come in the door around. I was still eating at 6 o'clock, mind you. He came home gray from the winter, from working, from worrying over his son who was going to become everything that he hated. And my mother's like slaving over him, catering. Seriously, I'm just telling you point blank what the, the upbringing. He comes in white from the day. And I see his eyes dot right over to the empty tray steak, the, the leftover fries. I was like the young King Farouk in the making. I was on the ice cream point. Yeah, Ma, I'll have another one. All right, get me a kitchen and knock it. Go get me another one. Oh, we were terrible kids. So spoiled because they wanted some food like that. What are you waiting on? <laughs> All right, you're kind of working me on Saturday. No, I don't want to go down in that basement. Yeah, you're going to clean bronzes again. You and the Bowery Bum, I pay 75 cents a week. You're going to go down there with the, uh, and you'll clean those bronzes and you'll know what it is to be a man. I'm looking at clothes that you wear out here, you and your friends. What do you mean, Dad? We're just wearing clothing that is not black or gray. Never mind. Ah, oh, come on. I go on and on it. And it's absolutely true. And uh, that, that, that's the way it was. Okay, but the point of the story is this went on for years and years and years. Now, if I were conducting human experiments and it was legal, I wouldn't do it to anybody. But if I wanted to conduct an experiment on what causes early death from coronary artery disease, that diet would be the model. That would be the epidemiologic model. You take somebody and put them in a prison 
and you'd feed him the exact diet three times three times a day. For five years, you can induce a heart attack in a seven-year-old, I think, with that diet. So there must be a little bit more to it. You understand that there's got to be three parts to any disease pattern, diet or the environment, genes, and then there's, the, there's another factor. There's whatever else you do, and a little luck thrown in the unknown. I'm still ticking along here. Thank God I caught on to it young. Thank God I went to, you know, I left New York. I looked for the fountain of youth. I did the Ponce de Leon thing, and I investigated nutrition early on. First nutrition book I ever read was George Osawa's Zen Macrobiotics, the number 12 diet, brown rice. There's a diet that it will definitely give you longevity, but you don't want it. It means no reason to live. You hit the number 12 diet, and they all got sick anyway. It was all a lie. All the guys who practiced those extreme diets, they all died of, like, liver cancer at 40. You ever notice how many guys who were, oh, yeah, I'm a vegetarian years ago, a runner? They're all dead. The purists. I never touch animal products. I don't eat uh, any fish, fowl, nothing from the sea. I do not touch dairy. I'm a lacto-ovo uh, humanitarian, vegetarian, unitarian. I absolutely don't touch it. You know, in a number 12, I live on a rice diet, rice-based, soy-based. And uh, usually a liver cancer struck them or hepatitis somehow. From, I don't know if maybe kissing the girls with mustaches they got. I have no idea. Hanging around in dirty health food stores could, could do it to you, too. Just going in and breathing in the back from the old, you know, the moldy uh, rice in the back that they try to sell. The Savage Nation. It's savage, uncut, unfiltered, and raw. Now here's a true childhood story that I may have told once in 15 years of radio. Barry Schmaltz and his crazy mother, Betty Schmaltz, and his father, Louis Schmaltz. The names have been changed to protect the Schmaltzes. Uh, let's see. How do I begin the story? He was about 15 years old. He was a tall kid. His bedroom, pink carpet. Two-story house, nice house. He's having a fist fight with his father in the bedroom over something his mother said. It ends with him crying and enraged because he knew he could beat the heck out of his father after a few real good punches were thrown. I don't know if you've ever seen a father and son fight. It's, it's, it's actually heartbreaking to see. To me, it was a violation of a, a very deeply held um, taboo. Never to strike your father no matter what. Well, I don't know, but that family was crazy from top to bottom. They went at each other with straight rights and blasted each other. And it ended with the kid holding his punches because I think he couldn't really knock his father on his butt. He picked up a piggy bank that to me was like, uh, looked like a 25-pound piggy bank that he had had, a ceramic one, since I knew him for 10 years. And he was enraged and red-faced and tears running down his eyes. He looked at his father and he smashed the piggy bank on the floor. And all the coins that he had collected since childhood was, was smashed. And then the father threw him out of the house. And he wound up living in my mother's basement for a little while. Now, I don't know this guy anymore, but let me tell you what happened that day. Here's what happened that day. His mother was a would-be, like, movie star. As many women were in the 50s. They were always trying to be like either not Marilyn Monroe, but there were some buxom movie like Jane Mansfield, more like that type Cadillac, uh, the platinum blonde hair, always showing off. The father was a worker, gray faced. He'd come home gray faced from from his job. Uh, he owned a little wholesale milk business. So they were a little better off than us somehow. But she had the Cadillac, the Coupe de Ville, pink one. And uh a whack job, nuts out of her mind. Why? She was always trying to lose weight. She went to some doctor in New Jersey who put her on Benzedrine or some kind of amphetamines, which gave her a madness, a, a, a Benny high. And so she comes home crazy out of her mind, and she takes a dog chain and beats her wrist till it bleeds just before the father comes in at dark, at dusk, ashen-faced from the day in the milk plant, and she says, Louie, 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 look what your rotten son did to me. Look what he did to my hands. Well, Louie, the father, naturally would be protective of his wife. He runs upstairs and screams to the kid, Barry, what did you do to your mother? And the kid says, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. You liar, you. And that's when they fought. So from the crazy mother, Betty Schmaltz, who turned Louie against Barry, now, you say drug usage is prevalent today. Let me tell you something. There's plenty of drug usage in those glorious Eisenhower days. 
but it was sub rosa drug usage. The half the women were either on Milltown or on Benzedrine for diet. Milltown was uh, prescribed then as uh, Prozac, let's say, is today. You know, a lot of kids came home from college and used a little Milltown with rosé wine, Meduse rosé. They got a nice, uh, a nice buzzeroo during uh, during the afternoons when the mother wasn't home. So I'm telling you, that that's the Schmaltz story. It's a sad story, and the kid wound up basically a bug all his life. He was never stable. Well, I haven't seen him in many years. Right? He was he was a good friend of mine, but he's a not a reliable friend because of see when a kid can't rely upon his mother or his father, he winds up to be an unreliable person in life 99% of the time. He winds up to be someone you can't count on because he can never count on, on somebody else. I had a geometry teacher in high school. He had two fingers on his right hand. He was a tough guy. He was an Irishman and real tough, but a very good teacher. And a, the kind of teacher who made you come up to the blackboard and perform at the blackboard. And if you didn't, he ridiculed you. He didn't curse you out, but he called you a dummy. Basically, he says, now what's the matter with you today, Michael? Is your brain not functioning? That kind of thing. And believe me, you didn't want to wind up in front of that class not knowing your stuff because you didn't want to be humiliated in front of your peers called your classroom. Now today, they take every moron off the street, every idiot, every dumb dyslexic, every idiot who has a one eye going up, one eye going down. He can't talk, he can't see, he can't hear. And they tell you he's smarter than you are. And if you dare be smarter than him, you go to the back of the class. But in those days, it was very clear. If you were smart, you were smart. If you were stupid, you were dumb. And that was the end of it. And no one changed anything. So he had a left hand with five fingers and a right hand with two fingers. And the two fingers were stubs. But he could still put chalk on a board. And when he said to you, the midterm exams are back, he would read out every name and every score publicly. Now, why do you think he did it? Because he understood that by... Doing well, you were proud of yourself, and the kids looked up to you, and by doing poorly, you were ashamed of yourself, boys and girls, and you try to do better. But because the liberal perverts took over the schools, where they try to put perversion ahead of everything else, they have now taken dummies and try to make that better than the smarties. And consequently, the schools can't even teach Johnny how to add or read. And if Johnny's smart enough, and he can't focus at all, they put him on Ritalin to dope him up and turn him into a sissy and a dumbbell who can't do anything except sit in a cubicle the rest of his life and possibly jump off a building when he's 25. Now, how Mr. W lost his fingers is another interesting story. We all knew about it very fast. I forget his full name. It was Mr. W. And they, they, it was whispered in the halls of the high school that he lost his fingers, and I'm not glorifying it, planting a bomb for the IRA. Now, I don't know whether it was true, but it was certainly enough to make us understand not to mess around with this teacher. And we didn't. We respected him. Whether it was true or not is irrelevant. That's who we had for teachers in those days. The deep right field, that ball is going, going, it is gone. Maris hitting his second homer of the day. And the Yankees, sixth homer. And there is the nostalgia set up, the Mel Allen voice, one of the greatest voices radio has ever heard. And uh, one of the earliest radio voices that I came to love. And here I am sitting in front of a microphone with a radio voice that millions love. And I'm going to close the hour out now with another story that will be in my autobiography. And it's called My First Embalming, since we talked about The Undertaker. And here it is. I was now a late teenager. And I had gone to Europe, big trip to Europe. You know, hippie, beatnik trip to Europe see the museums, blah, 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 came back on a ship. I come back from Europe, and I thought I had become a little off base. I was a little kind of teenage angst, um, little nuts. So I took a job in a mortuary at Queens General Hospital. I can remember it to this day, red brick, big smokestack, looked like a crematorium. And I go in there as an assistant to just basically mop up and sweep up in a, in a, in a mortuary. I had never seen an embalming. I don't know why I took that job of all jobs. It was like a bizarre choice to begin with. I guess it proves I was a little off-based after going to Europe. But then again, I wouldn't be the first nor the last person to come back from Europe uh, uh, and think they were a little crazy. Just take a look at Europe. So I go down into the thing, and the guy gives me an apron and a, and a mop. And he says, just basically, your job is to mop up the floor. But meanwhile, I'm watching the uh, the autopsies. 
This was not a, a now. This is really my first autopsy, not my first embalming. It's my first autopsy. So I watched a doctor. Now here's a doctor with a medical degree. He was a medical examiner performing an autopsy. He has a cigar in his mouth, which I thought was uh, weird and kind of disrespectful to the dead. The guy is chomping on a cigar. He cuts open a dead woman's head, like the top of her head, to pull back the skull cap and to remove the brains for, you know, they, that's what an autopsy is, is you examine the organs. And I'll never forget it as long as I lived. She happened to have been an African-American lady and a large woman, and he was pulling and pulling and pulling, and the skull wouldn't pull off, and he puts his foot up against the gurney that she's on or the uh, stainless steel thing and pulling and cursing and the cigar and I'm mopping the kid in the, in the, in the room there. I couldn't believe what I'm watching. And finally, uh, you know, he curses and there it comes out and that's it. So now then I see another man, man must've been 50, 55 white man in good shape, just slim, gray haired, but not old looking dead. And he was completely naked as you, you would expect uh, on a, on a slab. And um, the kid's mopping, 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 and I look very carefully at the, at the uh, uh, corpse, and I noticed a, a, some semen on his uh, uh, thigh, which again was novel and unique, because I didn't understand much about death at that time, as much as I since learned. And then there was a young child, two or three years old, as beautiful as a doll, blonde hair, blue eyes, like a doll, still and dead for no reason. Still in debt for no reason. I quit the next day and threw in my mop, and that was my first and last autopsy. The same guy showed me my first uh, corpse down there, too. It was interesting. Hot day, July, Coca-Cola, icebox, outside, grocery store. They call them bodegas, then they became clubs. You fished in the bottom of the Coca-Cola box. They had ice in it that turned to water, and your arm turned blue as you fished around for a soda. That kind of day. And... The undertaker's there. My father was busy working in the back of his little shop making a lamp or cleaning. I don't know what he was doing. He, he wired a lot of statues into lamps, and he was busy doing that. Hot day. I'm outside, so I ask him what's going on in the in the uh, mortuary down there. You know, it was a funeral parlor, but they performed embalming. They did embalming. So he said, well, would you like to see what goes on? I said, okay, sure. So uh, get in the elevator, and you get it was one of those elevators like in lofts where you pull a big cord from the top like a godfather elevator they move cars on. And to this day, I can hear the hum of that elevator, mm, the motor. And I'm going down this huge car elevator into the basement, the subterranean depths of a funeral parlor. We get down there and there's a doctor performing an autopsy. No, it wasn't an autopsy. Sorry, this was the embalming story. Now I come back up in the street. Must have been a half an hour later. My father's in the undershirt outside the store, and he's looking for me. Hey, Mike, Michael, where? And he turns and he sees me, and when his eyes caught my eyes, he saw I was a changed person. Home of Borders, Language, Culture, The Savage Nation. I got to tell a half-man, half-woman story in Long Beach. Uh, I'm not talking about the supervisors of San Francisco. I'm talking about a long time ago in New York City. Dad had a small antique store. I told you he sold clocks and figures and statues, mainly 19th century French, and some of it was very good. So amongst the many customers, one of them was a, a circus performer in the freak show of Ringling Brothers who uh, would get up there half man, half woman. I don't know. He had a breast on one side and the other side he didn't. I, I don't know how they with a half a beard. But, you know, after work, he was a regular person and he lived in a house in Long Beach, like one of those little godfather houses. So dad would deliver the, the work after work. He delivered his own, you know, uh, sales. He didn't have a delivery boy. And I would, you know, I was the kid. I'd go along on the ride, whether it would be the DeSoto or the the uh, the Cadillac Model 62 with the statues in the back. And we pull up late at night because this guy didn't like to come out during the day. I'll never forget this as long as I live. So the circus guy, the half man, half woman, ring, ring, who's there? Blah, blah, blah. So the guy opens the door, but he can't open the door all the way. He can only open it a crack. And he has to, like, pull the door and push stuff to get... And the house is now littered with art objects in no particular order. Hundreds of statues and paintings on the floor, nothing hung right. He would buy one beautiful thing after another and just randomly put it on the floor like a warehouse. 
And what was that? Nobody knew. I knew. I was a kid who thought on those long rides out to Long Island and long rides back, those long winter nights over the Williamsburg Bridge in the car with the sound of the grated metal underneath the tire as your car went over it, looking down from the childhood at the ships that came back from the Korean War with the painting and the LST in the, in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. All the way through to this, I figured out what it was. This guy was a freak. He was ugly in his own mind. So he compensated for his ugliness by buying beauty. And he needed to surround himself with beautiful things as much as possible in a compulsive way. I did not go into psychiatry because I did not want to subject myself to people's problems. But trust me. I know exactly what people are all about, including the half-man, half-woman in Long Beach. The story I'm going to tell you occurred when I was a young man, first a kid and then a young man. And it was about a man who grew up as my father's, one of my father's best friends in a very poor neighborhood in New York City. They were immigrants together. Their parents came over. They came over, I think, maybe on the same boat, or they met each other in the slums of New York. And they, they both had a very tough life, and they worked their way up little by little, little by little, as the immigrants have to do and as they struggle in the society. And this man went into a business that took off at a certain point like a rocket. He hit a fad in a certain business, and he started to make a great deal of money, and he moved way beyond our family. While we lived in an attached house in Queens, New York, an attached brick house, he had the money to move his family to a detached house <laughs> remember how important that distinction was in those days is like the buick le saber as opposed to the buick roadmaster or well, god forbid you a rockefeller you bought an old a cadillac if you can imagine that's how people used to grade themselves in those days by their status cars and houses i don't suppose it's much different today it just isn't as easy to figure out in some regard not on the road anyway anyway so he moved to this uh detached house in, in in Roslyn, New York. And it was a beautiful house. It had its own garden all around it. We only had a little strip of grass in the backyard, a little teeny one in the front. And um, the carpet was wall to wall and it was pink. And he was a big cigar smoker. And we go over and visit. And I had a very good time. He would gloat, you know, with the cigar and lord it over my father. And we'd leave. My father never said anything against him. But, you know, I could see in his eyes that he was in his, you know, he was a little, let's say, you know, let's say he lost that little battle at that time. You know how men are. I mean, men are competitive. Even if they love their friend, if their friend does better than them, there's a degree of envy in every human being. It's just one of the cardinal sins. As years went on, the man's business continued to thrive. And then I left home. I moved away from New York City. I went and did my thing collecting plants, working for my graduate degrees. Thousands of miles away. I was living 6,000 miles away then 9,000 miles away in the Fiji Islands. And lo and behold, on one of my trips back to New York when I was already a father myself, I had heard that this man's business had collapsed entirely. The fad that he had rode like a wave had died. Women were no longer buying that particular product. And the man who had a chain of successful wholesale stores lost everything. He lost everything, and it was so fast that he wound up living where he started on the Lower East Side of New York in a poor relative's apartment with his wife and the uh, relative's family, back where he started in a one-room apartment. And that's where I come in. I come back from one of my trips to the Fiji Islands. I'm a young man in my, I don't know how old I must have been. I, I don't remember, 25, 30. I don't remember what, I, what age I was already anymore. And there he was sitting in my father's house, and I love this man. I loved him like, a, like you know, another father. I loved all my father's friends. And you know how it is when you're a kid in a very close-knit community. You tend to love the people like they're your own. You know, we all grew up so closely together. There was never a bad word between him and my father. Man, he's sitting there shrunken up in the chair in my living room where he had lost everything. And he looks up at me, still smoking a cigar. And he was shrunken in the chair. And he looks up at me in his eyes and he says, Michael, Michael, look what happened to me. Look what happened to me. And his eyes were like wandering left and right. He didn't understand what happened to him. And he said, I'd rather I have cancer than what God did to me. And lo and behold, lo and behold, I soon left New York. I went back to do what I did, which is collecting plants. And I heard that two years later, he died from one of the most rapidly uh, invasive forms of brain cancer. Be careful what you say. God hears the truth, but waits. 
So you see, I was about 16 years old, Queens, New York, and one of the girls in the crowd was, she was that way, she was an infomaniac. It was a cold winter's evening. A group of five or six guys took her in a car to Alley Pond Park, and uh, they had their way with her. I was one of the guys in the car, and I did not want my way with her. In fact, I felt bad for her. I, I didn't know what to do. I was like, I was the idiot, sensitive kid in the back who was laughed at, like, hey, it's your turn. I said, no, I just don't want to do this. Something's wrong here. So after the guys, these pigs, these animals, most of whom wound up working in the garment center, uh, selling clothing, some I think went into the television business, one went into the record business, uh, got through with her. The car went back to her house, and here's the whole crux of the story. It's not like laughing about the nymphomaniac in the car. Here's the crux of the story. Car pulls up back in front of her house, and she lived in a nice house. And her father's waiting for her on the lawn of the house with an overcoat. The guys basically throw her out of the car, disheveled and like half naked, laughing, and speed away. And I turn around and see the father walking up to her to cloak her and cover her nakedness with the overcoat. Now, there's so much in that story that needs to be discussed. What a father. What a great father he was. Now, you'd think a father would scream, you filthy slut, you, blah, 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 how dare you? Or he'd come at the car and hit the guys. He didn't do either, did he? He lived with what was. He knew who his daughter was and what her proclivities were. I don't know how she wound up. I mean, maybe she turns out. A lot of people go through these phases, and they, uh, you know, in a woman's side, you know, can straighten out. I mean, I don't know what they become. Maybe a yoga instructor or something later on in life or if they're a male and they suffer from satiriasis, they become a president like Bill Clinton. You know, if they suffer the equivalent of nymphomania in male, it's satiriasis. And that can make you into a wonderful president in some cases. But in either case, that's the story of the nymphomaniac at Alley Pond Park. Michael Savage, a host like no other. It was raining a lot this weekend, so Teddy hung out with me. You can't leave. The, the, he watches you like a hawk. You get up, the eye goes, they move. They watch everything you do. And you, they're so tied to you, it's frightening. And then I feel like I'm I'm like cheating on it. If I slip out to do a bike ride, I, I got to, I was like, I feel bad. Like, I'm, I got to do it, man. I'm sorry. I got a bicycle. I won't be healthy. And it's like, he gives me the eye like, you, oh, you cheat. I mean, I can't wait till you come back. Then he jumps like crazy. It's heartbreakingly wonderful, beautiful. But something happens, I guess. It's a dog psychology thing. He has a blanket, a baby blanket thing that he drags with him. I don't know what this is. He bites it and rubs against it. All of a sudden, I don't know how to do this on a family show in a nice way now. He's gone beyond just sort of uh, hanging out on that blanket and like biting it a little bit. You know, like He's actually treating it like it's a mate. I turn around in the car in the middle of a rainstorm. It's like, it's like Alfred Hitchcock's psycho. He's giving the blanket the business. I mean, with the whole body movement, it's really, it's like, it's like internet, you know, dog wacko style. It's really weird. So what am I going to say to him? Don't do it. He's not a person. I figure, who's he harming? I go ahead. Have a good time there. And the whole thing was nuts. I didn't know whether to say anything. If I said something, then I would have been crazy to be involved with the dog, what he's doing to a blanket. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? The conflict I was in for that moment. This little cute 10-pound dog is all of a sudden whacked out perv on a blanket. With the whole body movement, you know how they look on a lawn when they're doing like number two? All of a sudden, that posture in the car, in the seat, against the blanket. I didn't know what to say to him. If I said, don't do it, I figured uh, I'd make it worse. So I chose to look the other way. I don't know, maybe I'll grow it. Who knows? He's three years old already. Three times seven is 20. But they don't live seven to one anymore, do they? It used to be seven years to one dog year because they fed him kennel rage and they died at nine. Nine, if tops nine. Tippy went to seven, they found, like, stiff on the rug. Utopia Parkway with the garbage men with the brown suits. Grim, why were the garbage men so different then? They were all involved, like, in the, they always did something illegal. Down, down there by Canarsie with the pits, with the bodies, I think. I don't know, they took the I don't understand that part of it. The garbage men were so rugged looking. They were so unbelievable, like, from another world. You didn't look at a garbage man the wrong way in those days. Or you would have wound up in, like, mmm. You know what I mean? The thing went around. You didn't look at the, you didn't play around like you're lower than me. You say, oh, I got a white collar. I'm better than you. Your Buick would have wound up in the back of the, of the truck. Uh, how you doing? And they came around with those plows in the winter. And they, if you said one wrong word to them in the spring, come the winter, I can guarantee you your car was buried from the plow. That's all I can tell you. 
Whereas if you gave them a $20 bill for Christmas the year before when the snow came, I guarantee you they went around you with the plow. In fact, but that was a different time today. It was personal then. The garbage men you could get personal with today. I don't know. You don't know who to say to what. I don't know what language to speak to, to half the people that I'm supposed to give a tip. Even the newspaper guy leaves a thing with it like in his Spanish, Noel, give me a tip for the newspaper. He should give me a tip for reading that thing. So where was I going with it? I forgot already. The dog. Oh, because 7 to 10, 7 to 1, Tippy died at 8, 7 to 56. Oh, and the father, same thing, heart attack in the 50s. So it was 7 to 1. Today's like 20 to 1. They outlive you. They used to say uh, a dog lives to 25 now, like almost like a monkey. They're almost like a monkey in age. 28, you hear crazy things. 26, they keep them alive with like special things for their real legs and kidney transplants. They have monuments and guys who make monuments that for, you don't know what, the world's crazy. The world's a crazy world. It's about what, 12 to 1 now, 10 to 1? Well, less. It goes the other way. Then if they live to 20. No, when it's five to one. What are we talking about? It goes the other way. Five years to one in a dog life. So that means, oh, he's a teenager. That's what I'm getting at. Little dogs live longer. Okay, so let's uh, argument's sake, he lives to 20. So 20 is like, what, 80? So 20 is four to one already. So if he's three, he's 12. That's what boys do at 12. So, okay, he's normal. Train, train. Train is soothing. There you go. I need sound effects to put myself into the headspace volatile. The headspace volatiles of the train sound. There's something so soothing about a train. Yet there are people you hear you say, play a train. They need an anxiety, uh, anti-anxiety pill. Because it's, okay, now I know why I'm playing the train. Because I'm coming up on Thanksgiving and at the memories. All of the Thanksgivings that we'd go out to Pennsylvania to visit the relatives. Did I love that Wednesday? Did I love the Wednesday of the week of the Thanksgiving when my mother would come? I said, Ma, why do I have to go to school if we're leaving from Penn Station at 1 o'clock? Why must I go to school in the morning? Can I have the whole day off? No, you'll get something out of the day, go for half a day. I hated it. It made no sense to me. I couldn't learn. I was nervous. My hands would sweat. No matter what the teacher said, my mind was only on the ham sandwich or the train or the cousins and her. So I go, then she'd come for us at noon. I never forget that. I'd be sitting there with a little heart beating. And there was mom. She'd come to school and get us. And then I don't know how we got down to Penn Station. I don't know. In relative or no, it took subways or something. My dad had to work. And we go down to Penn Station. It was so exciting for a little kid, five, six, seven years old, uh, coming out of the Bronx to go out to Pennsylvania by trains in those days. I got to tell you, it was unbelievable. Now, you get into Penn Station, the, the hustle and the bustle and the excitement of people pushing and pulling. Now, i got to tell you, in those days, I, I, I guess I'm sounding old, they used to have steam trains that ran on coal. They were coal-driven trains. However, the train in Penn Station was, of course, not coal-driven. New York had banned the coal-driven train. They were electric. But the minute the train went under the Hudson River and came out on the other side out of the tunnel, the engines would be switched over to a coal-driven train. I frankly love the stink of the smoke from the coal train. There's a certain byproduct of, you've got to understand what I'm saying. Many people will get this all wrong, of course, as they do almost everything I say, just to show that I'm not what I really am. But to this day, for example, if I'm on a large ocean liner, which I haven't been on in a number of years, I used to like occasionally to get a backdraft of the, uh, the smell coming out of the chimney. I don't mean I stood there to die, but there was something about it. I can't put my finger on it. It's like secondhand smoke. You don't really want it, but if you inhale it, you say, what the heck, it's not bad. So we get on the train, boom, 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 and there goes the smoke. And this thing was belching out black smoke for miles. Of course, we understand why we had to get rid of that. Now you settle down for the two-hour ride out to the uh, Pennsylvania country land. My God, was it fun. I had my comic books. I had my coloring books. The porter would come around and, uh, you know, get the sandwich, the countryside shooting, but... To this day, I love trains, but I haven't been on one in 10 years. Who has the time for a train today? I have time only for you, the audience. I am dedicated 24-7 to this. This is, my, this is my addiction. Then you'd get there, and we'd get to Pennsylvania, and I'll tell you, the most exciting part was getting there. I still have nightmares to this day. And the, the train would get in, and the smoke, and the people pushing, and the carts, and the da-da-da. Where are the relatives? Where are they? I don't see them. Where is, where is he? Where? 
and you didn't see your relative and to a kid going to a strange state and your relative is not there instantly you think you're like homeless and then out of the fog and the smoke oh there he is and you get together it was the greatest moment on earth Playing Italian music because I have a treat for you. I found the poem when pasta was spaghetti in my archives. It was written, let's see, Michael Savage, August 1985, written in a lightning storm at 40,000 feet over Cheyenne, Wyoming. When I thought the plane was going to crash, I wrote when pasta was spaghetti. So here it is, whether you like it or not, all right? So you liberals get ready to sneer, and you sane people get ready to enjoy it because it's a wonderful poem. So play the music again. Go ahead. got the mood we got the mood set up it's called when pasta was spaghetti and try to imagine it all right the hairy forearms of new york serve you your coffee with a turning gesture an offering that says drink eat enjoy the wiry italian and vincent's clam bar the one behind the greased over register the young kid connected who receives his deference from the spaghetti cook older than his gangster father the spaghetti cook who looks like an old-fashioned doctor from the bronx with clipped mustache he actually pulls some noodles out of the pot and eats them as they cook looking to the grimy ceiling for his tender answer well they used to call it spaghetti now it's pasta at 10 bucks a plate the smoky windows of Romeo's Spaghetti now offers radios and knickknacks. It was 50 cents a plate then. In neon letters that you couldn't miss, even through a fogged over window on a cold winter's eve, there was life. Marinara sauce that smacked to the sea. Noodles as long as your young arm. Meatballs as fluffy as your dream of them. Bread on the table you'd eat against your parents' admonitions that the meal was coming, the meal was coming. And men, some burly with black hairy forearms whose smiles scared you. And little skinny guys with the look of murder on their faces. And people who slurped their spaghetti straight to their mouths from the plate. One motion like Chinese shoveling rice at mouth with clicking sticks. That was gusto before it became a beer ad. That was taste before it became a synonym for fashion. That was the spaghetti before it became pasta. Play the music, basta. Well, thank you very much for listening to today's podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it and learned something from it. We have about 400 other episodes available for you to listen to absolutely free. You can go back into our vast library of podcasts and listen to any one of them at any time. And remember this, if you want to listen to my podcast ad-free, sign up for the Savage Premium Membership and get access to ad-free podcasts as well as some premium content from our Savage archives. How do you sign up for those ad-free podcasts? please visit michaelsavage.com for a link. Again, thank you for your listenership. This is Michael Savage.